So a couple of months ago, I was contacted by a group that was interested in discussing an ARPA for green buildings and sustainable urbanism. With the effects of climate change becoming more frequent and intense than anticipated, we can no longer wait 10 to 20 years to adapt to this new normal. The effects of climate change are happening now. We need the tools and the policies the funding, and the ability to rapidly adapt and mitigate to them now. And so Large Lab really believes that we need an ARPA-U, a projects-based advanced research projects agency dedicated to urbanism to facilitate the research and development necessary to rapidly roll out high-performance decarbonized buildings, eco-districts, and low-carbon cities. In effect, these are the things that I think that we should be doing anyway. My brain was contemplating the political and economic focus around some of these issues. Maybe we'll actually start to see movement on them because we haven't been, and it's incredibly frustrating. A number of the topics are in today's episode will be incorporated and discussed in future episodes. There will also be some references to previous episodes. This line that's kind of consistent, right? Everything is kind of interwoven in in what I talk about. What really kickstarted this discussion with this group around an ARPA for low-carbon cities was the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act. So part of the Inflation Reduction Act includes provisions for making green building products or clean energy products in the U.S., revitalizing American manufacturing. I have a lot to say about this. And strengthening the workforce, strengthening the manufacturing base. Part of this is incentives for decarbonization, energy production. It's kind of this broad suite, right, of areas. The Inflation Reduction Act will kind of guide solutions towards being more energy efficient, towards being more carbon neutral and climate friendly. And so with the passage of the IRA, there kind of became this larger question of where should some of these funds be focused? Or what kinds of things could these funds be utilized to kickstart? Where are some of our deficits in manufacturing or design, procurement, et cetera, in the U.S.? You know, where could we focus these things? Today's episode is really just, it's a download of a, an ARPA urbanism. Welcome to the Livable Low Carbon City podcast, the show about the interconnectedness of low carbon living, decarbonized buildings, and quality of life. I am your host, Michael Eliason, architect and founder of Large Lab. An ARPA is an advanced research projects agency. It is effectively an R&D, a research and development agency for a government organization. The original ARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, was created in 1958 under Eisenhower in response to the launch of Sputnik 1 by the Soviets. DARPA has gone on over the years to effectively kickstart a number of really fascinating technologies and products, satellites, GPS. For us Passive House folks, infrared sensing is another product that came out of the DARPA agency as well. So the idea was that this would be a kind of rapid prototyping of different products that would have viable and technical use in terms of defense. What's interesting is that this concept has been copied into other realms as well. So in 2009, under President Obama, the ARPA-E the ARPA Energy Group was launched. This was really about financing low-carbon energy technologies, R&D grants to various outfits for commercialization. There were some interesting successes out of this program. There were some spectacular failures. But that's kind of the whole intent of the ARPA process is that not everything is going to succeed. It's really about finding pathways to implement programs or kickstart programs that will have viable and long-lasting and impactful issues. So Solyndra, of course, is one 
of the larger RPE failures. And so one of the reasons that this is so critical is it can take decades to have commercial success or impact from different products, especially in the energy industry as we're dealing with decarbonization and climate change, climate action. We don't have this long timeline to really work out all of the bugs. We need this expedited process. And that's really where the ARPA comes in. It says, look, the model works. We'll get funding to it. We'll figure out how to do it. We'll figure out how to solve it. And then from there, hopefully, you know, we have some game-changing solutions that can come forth. The ARPA-E, alongside the ARPA-E, the Biden administration has proposed an ARPA-H for health. So a healthcare-related ARPA with the pandemic and things of that nature underway. You can see where rapid prototyping and things of this nature would come into play. And Biden's administration has also proposed an ARPA-C, ARPA-C for climate solutions. I would narrow this to cities and urbanism, an ARPA-C plus U. And so out of the discussion that I was having with this organization, look, if you were the director of a research agency and part of Large Lab is a think and do tank, we're really interested in issues around research and broadening the discourse and as well as knowledge share and all these other things as well. But the question was, if you were running a research agency and you were tasked with trying to rapidly mitigate as much climate change as possible and to create spaces and buildings and places that are adaptable to climate change, incentivizing low energy buildings, green technology, eco-urbanism, like what are some of the things that you would prioritize? So I put together a list. That conversation is still somewhat ongoing, but I thought it'd be really fascinating to put this information just kind of out into the world because these are things, especially in the US, that we don't necessarily prioritize, but I think we should be prioritizing. And so this is really just like an ideas download. And these will be topics that we'll be talking about over the next couple of months as well in future episodes. And so the first area where I think that we should be focusing on are Carlite Eco Districts. These are transit adjacent districts or neighborhoods, oftentimes in Europe found in brownfields, although not exclusively, generally large urban parcels as well, although again, not exclusively, they can be made up of many smaller parcels. And these are redeveloped to be relatively car light and to allow low carbon living with a high quality of life. In last week's episode of the podcast, let's un. TOD. You know, I started to talk about some of these concepts, and they're concepts that are fairly consistent in German and Austrian and Swiss discussions around eco districts and neighborhood planning or even neighborhood revitalization, but they're not really concepts that we incorporate into projects in the US. They're things that we talk about, but because of our building codes, zoning codes, misplaced priorities in designing and funding these districts like TOD or eco districts, we just don't get the same outcomes. We don't get the same high quality of life. And so for me, Carlite eco districts offer the potential to incorporate ample social housing, ample open space, because when we're adding density, we need to provide open space for people to hang out in, for their kids to hang out and play, uh, for gardens, spaces for respite, spaces for people watching, and everything else. Daycare facilities, again, if we're trying to create a 15-minute city or an eco-district, we need it to be a place of short distances. What better way to live than to have a daycare facility within a two to five-minute walk of where you live? This also means grocery stores, cafes, jobs. And the thing about eco-districts is that they 
they can scale pretty broadly. You can have an eco district that's just a couple of acres and still relatively intense, but maybe it's more residentially focused, all the way up to something like Zeestadt Ospern in Vienna, which is a new eco district that was built on the former airport. It has a massive amount of housing, significant number of jobs, shops, cafes, bakeries, schools, grocery stores, hotels, educational facilities, daycare. It really, it's kind of almost a self-contained city. And then it's connected by light rail, by the U-Bahn, Vienna's rapid transit system to get you into the heart of the city. And I think it's like a 20 minute ride. So on the larger end, they could provide homes for tens of thousands of residents, often with ample social housing. So there's a good economic and social mix against space for jobs, space for offices, workshops, co-working spaces, affordable co-working spaces, artists' ateliers, spaces for the productive city. And so it's really about just taking these resources and creating habitable, functional, livable spaces where people can live, where people can work. Also integrated into this mobility. There could be mobility hubs that it could incorporate shared car usage, bike share, bike workshops. Some incorporate youth centers. And smart ones are designed so that as cars are used less and less. There's less need for car storage. They can transition to more eco-friendly modes of transportation. So maybe instead of a couple of car parking spaces, it becomes several dozen bike parking spaces, or it can become a completely different use altogether. Does it become an office? Is it a garage? Does it become a gym? Does it become shops, a cafe? So smart planning can kind of facilitate that as well. And a recurring theme, I think in a lot of a lot of these podcasts is going to be co-benefits. Because of the way they're planned, Carlite Eco Districts have significantly more positive public health outcomes than the status quo development of neighborhoods and, and transit-oriented development in the US. And this is, I think, really important because we don't prioritize planning in a way that prioritizes public health. And there's a huge opportunity to really fix our cities and to address a lot of the neglect in our cities and to produce better places to live that have a high quality of life and where we're not poisoning our residents. And so what are some of the possible areas for further research on the Carlite Eco Districts? Well, there's definitely the question around funding opportunities and other aspects to unlocking eco districts. Point access block and building code reform is another area, especially if we're looking at more of the European models where instead of one big building taking up an entire block, you could have eight 10, 16 different smaller buildings. So you could have a very good economic and social mixing as well. Obviously, the public health benefits are areas to be researched when it comes to climate change. There are a ton of co-benefits and they've been identified by various organizations and the IPCC's Working Group 3 report on climate change mitigation. The topic of co-benefits and public health benefits of compact walkable urbanism were very heavily documented. It's also an opportunity to drastically increase the amount of social and middle-class housing in areas that we need it the most. I don't know a single person right now that isn't affected by our extensive housing crises in almost every state. And so Carlite Eco Districts could be a way of prioritizing solutions around that. There's obviously lots of opportunities for research around what land use code modifications would be necessary to expedite or facilitate this, what financing tools can be done to expedite or facilitate this, questions about policy. The next area that I think that should be focused on expediting the adoption of Passive House and whether this is a combination of mandates or carrots or other sticks to really facilitate all new construction and frankly, all rehabilitations and retrofits as well, getting in line with that standard as rapidly as possible. So for those who don't know, Passive House is a global low energy standard that results in high quality buildings that perform 
extremely well in hot, cold, or even temperate climates. Typically, they're buildings with a little bit more insulation, slightly better performing windows. They incorporate heat recovery ventilation systems that supply continuous fresh filtered air. They represent somewhere between a 60 to 90% decrease in heating and cooling costs, which generally means that you're going to have significantly smaller systems for heating or cooling versus status quo design. Passive house buildings are incredibly easy to make fossil fuel free. It's also less expensive to hit net zero with photovoltaics and other forms of energy production. And then we can talk about the co-benefits. Passive House is really effective at mitigating urban noise. You know, that extra amount of insulation, better windows, triple pane windows, better insulating doors. And since we focus most of our housing uh, in the U.S. on loud, polluted, and dangerous arterials, what better way to at least mitigate the noise aspect than to ensure that the noise doesn't bother residents. Similarly, the Passive House is also a building that is airtight, and it's part of the reason why the heat recovery ventilation system is required for supplying continuous, fresh-filtered air. The HRV and the airtightness kind of work together to keep out air pollution, to keep out dust. So these are buildings that have uh, much higher indoor air quality. And post-COVID, in terms of pandemics, they're also, I think, much more resilient. And similarly, the way a passive house building is designed is also pretty effective at keeping out wildfire smoke. Now, if you open your windows, that smoke is going to come in regardless, and it'll be a separate issue to deal with. But if you're running your HRV and your building is airtight, you can pre-filter that air so that it's not inundating that interior with smoke. And so you can have this kind of pleasant breathing environment. Now, if you listen to the Unfrozen podcast that I was on a couple of weeks ago, Daniel Safarik and Greg Lindsay, one of the questions that was posed was, are people going to want to live in a healthy environment if they can't go outside the rest of the year? I think that's a legitimate question. But part of me is like, we need to focus on mitigation. So that's you know, focus on getting the passive house now, we definitely have to resolve the issue around wildfires and smoke inundation in our country. And as the West Coast continues to dry out, this issue is only going to become more imperative. All right. And so what are some of the areas for further research around this? Well, funding opportunities to facilitate passive house development. Again, the public health benefits, the co-benefits of passive house are massive compared to status quo construction. When it comes to passive survivability, passive house beats status quo construction hands down. And in the heat dome that, that the Pacific Northwest experienced last year, a colleague of mine, his passive house home was over 20 degrees cooler than it was on the outside, and he didn't even have an active cooling system. It was just shade. And the effect works in cold snaps as well. So passive house buildings during the Texas cold snap were able to stay warmer and habitable for much longer, it meant that pipes weren't bursting sooner, residents could be more comfortable inside until things could be normalized. Right. And then what are some other potential research paths to mandating passive house? Frankly, it blows my mind that there's not a single jurisdiction in the U.S. that mandates passive house with all of the benefits that we know for it. We know that passive house can be built at cost here in the city of Seattle. Walsh Construction recently opened an affordable housing project that actually had a lower construction cost than originally budgeted. It hit passive house. And so it's not some far off distance thing, right? Like a properly planned building can meet passive house for no additional cost and immediately is much more climate adaptive than status quo construction. And so we should really be prioritizing that and focusing on that to the greatest extent possible. Another area of focus is around zoning reform. Zoning is a significant impediment to the construction of housing needed to meet the housing demand. The shortage that we have today is directly related in part to the lack of zoned capacity in most of our cities, especially 
in high demand areas. You know, when I first wrote this list, there wasn't a lot of movement on the land use and zoning issues in California. In the last like six weeks, the state of California has completely shifted the conversation around zoning reform in a way that I didn't really think was possible. And so we'll see if that has knock on effects into other locations. Zoning can exacerbate segregation. It affects housing on affordability. It also affects our inability to meet climate goals, right? So if we're not zoning for dense walkable neighborhoods, then we're not going to have these car light places, these 15-minute cities. We're not going to have the density that can support grocery stores or transit. And so zoning reform and land use reform are intricately connected to to kind of all of these other issues as well. As I've mentioned lots of times on this podcast, in the U.S., we limit density to narrow swaths of land along arterials, generally the worst places to live. They're polluted. They're toxic, they're dangerous, they're loud. And so this really results in this bifurcated development pattern where we have like these spiky, dense places along toxic streets and then almost immediately falling away to detached houses for increasingly for only the wealthy. And what this does is it puts those who have the least amount of wealth directly in the most harm. And it also prevents a significant number of residents from having a high quality of life. So zoning reform can be a tool that starts to flip that. And so the possible areas for further research include federal, state, or local levers for zoning reform. And then there's ample space for alternative forms of land use planning outside of Euclidean zoning. I'm not a huge fan of form-based codes, although some people do prefer form-based codes. But I think that there's really some interesting opportunities around zoning reform that could really upend the way that we've thought about cities for a long time to make them more climate adaptive, to make them more livable, to make them places that are more affordable and social. Along with zoning code reform is building code reform. So in ditching the double loaded corridor, we talked about point access blocks, the super fruit of climate adaptive urbanism the world over outside of a handful of places. The US, Canada, almost everywhere else allows point access blocks from five to 10 stories and sometimes even higher. And so a point access block is a multifamily building with a single protected stairway. Like I said, they're the dominant form of urban housing the world over. What point access blocks allow is the ability to unlock small lot development for missing middle and missing mid-rise typologies. This also allows for more family-sized housing. We're not going to see buildings with primarily two and three bedrooms in double-loaded corridors. The economics just do not work out. This also means more climate-adaptive housing where units can cross-ventilate. And it also means more compact uh, and affordable construction than status quo development in the U.S. Again, if we're talking about affordability and accessibility, energy consumption, embodied carbon, right? Point access blocks are kind of way out in front than the double-loaded corridor. And there are other areas of building code reform. It's kind of a new topic, right? Like people haven't really explored this much. And a lot of times when you talk about code reform, there are a lot of areas in the building code that potentially could unlock some interesting aspects. The building code is significantly larger today than it was 50 years ago. So the possible areas for further research, pathways to legalize point access blocks. Uh, happy to note that there are a number of jurisdictions that have contacted me in the last couple of months about prioritizing this. Another one, review of code writing processes to ensure that climate adaptive design is not just possible, but prioritized. On top of that, rolling out research around other areas of code reform, whether that's cheaper, lighter, and more energy efficient elevators, smaller elevators.
in the podcast on heat, active solar protection played a very critical role. And I think that active solar protection and climate adaptive buildings, so that's buildings that can adapt to a changing climate, should be very much explored and prioritized to the greatest extent possible. As global temperatures keep increasing, there's going to be an inflection point affecting buildings in ways that have not been adequately studied. Think about all glass buildings with no external shade. As I've mentioned before, this could become a huge liability, especially if temperatures inside them become deadly, especially paired with heat waves, which are going to become more common with corresponding power outages or wildfire events that require the power to be cut. And so active solar protection, that is external operable shading devices, are one path for mitigating this. There are numerous manufacturers and options in the European Union for adding shading to new and existing buildings and certainly subsidies from various cities as well. We need pathways for increasing the marketplace for more building components that do allow for climate adaptation and mitigation. Going back to the Made in America and increasing the manufacturing capability of the U.S., the fact that I can't, as an architect, spec a rolled-down shutter like I could in Germany, just it completely blows my mind. Like The entire culture needs to shift, and it needs to shift. It needed to shift 10 years ago. So areas for research. Well, uh, funding opportunities to facilitate marketplace for things like active solar protection. There has been a bit of research around electrochromic glass to block out solar heat gain in summer or in shoulder seasons. I'm not a huge fan of this technology, but there could be some interesting aspects around that. Again, the public health benefits and opportunities, especially when paired with uh, with healthcare. What if we could kick that up a notch? And what if we had buildings that were climate adaptive and there were some funding opportunities by co-developing within the healthcare system? I think there are some really interesting opportunities for advancing research around the prefabrication ecosystem. There have been some incredible failures and some successes, especially in the mass timber prefabrication realms in the U.S. But I think that there needs to be a better push for rolling out simple wall, floor, roof prefabrication systems for a variety of housing types, duplexes, missing middle, urban infill, large-scale development. This was very much the norm in Germany, where seemingly every city with a population greater than 50,000 people had a carpenter or a construction firm that could prefabricate simple, cost-effective, low-carbon wall and floor panels. And there's this massive push underway in the European Union with the value-added wood industry, which is going to see even more adoption and uptake with programs like the new European Bauhaus, you know, it's focused on decarbonization. It's focused on prefabricated construction systems. It's focused on circularity designed for deconstruction and things of that nature as well. And prefabrication, frankly, should be a high priority for high performance building assemblies. It allows for a multitude of co-benefits, faster site assembly, reduced carrying costs, adoption of circular principles, less construction waste, cleaner construction sites, quieter construction sites. And so for all of these reasons, I think that we need to be tackling this and rolling these out at a, a much faster rate. There are a lot of companies in the U.S. that have attempted to take this on at a much broader level of prefabrication that I think you would typically see in Sweden or Austria or Germany, including attempts to vertically integrate an entire company rather than just specializing in a few items and doing them really, really well and very cost effectively. There's also the question around exploring energetic retrofits through prefabricated components 
Both the Rocky Mountain Institute in Nyserda in New York are presently pursuing this with assistance from Energy Sprong. Energy Sprong is a Dutch retrofit system that utilizes exterior components to retrofit existing housing, generally row houses, but also multifamily housing. And what's interesting is Energy Sprong has, through the demand been created in their retrofits, has kickstarted several prefabrication factories just to supply them with the panels that they need. So back to questions about manufacturing and strengthening the workforce. There's a lot of really interesting opportunities around this. There's also some really interesting opportunities around robotics and prefabrication using robots to build wall assemblies, wall panels. There's a really interesting firm in British Columbia, Intelligent City. They're utilizing robots to manufacture cross-laminated timber mid-rise buildings. And there's a huge push in EU academic programs around the utilization of robotics and prefabrication and wood construction. Areas for further research, funding, research incentives for widespread adoption of of prefabrication and building with robotics, code inspection processes to expedite and normalize prefabrication. Frankly, I think there are massive knowledge share opportunities between parties in the U.S. who are interested in this and European companies. I have a number of colleagues that work very exclusively with European countries. They've been doing it for 20 years longer. They know what to do and they do it really well. And so there's some really interesting opportunities around that as well. Another area that would be really fascinating to roll out are ways of incentivizing, co-creating, developing new forms of collective urban dwelling. So development patterns in the U.S. tend to result in the least optimal form of housing, right, with little economic and social mixing. It's effectively... In most U.S. cities, detached houses or townhouses, which are increasingly unattainable, or really small apartments and really large buildings. And there's nothing really in between. But if you go to other cities around the world, there are a wide range of housing types between these two that allow for more affordability, that allow for community-oriented housing, that allow for multi-generational housing family-friendly living, housing geared specifically towards single parents or LGBTQ-friendly housing as well. Unfortunately, the options for projects like this are rare to almost non-existent in the U.S., and so we leave so much potential in terms of making these more inclusive and better cities off of the table. So for me, it's really about opportunities for expanding ownership or tenure types that are co-housing, Baugruppen, which are self-developed urban housing, CPOs. CPO is the Dutch version of a Baugruppe. Cooperatives, syndicates, community land trusts. There are these really fascinating hybrid models as well that we just don't really have the capacity to fund and build here in the U.S. at nowhere near the scale that it's needed. And there are also just a wide range of housing types or housing forms that we just don't get in the U.S. as well. Maisonettes, which are two-floor apartments. When I was living in Byron, we lived in a maisonette. It was a fourplex of maisonettes and 1,200 square feet, three-bedroom. is perfect for a family of four. There are also cluster apartments and other forms of congregate living and co-living, multi-generational living, right? There's this broad array of housing types that we could be unleashing. And really, we're dropping the ball on having this economic and social mix in American cities because of it. If families can't afford to live in cities, well, where are they going to go? They're going to go to the suburbs. It's going to increase their footprint. It's going to increase the amount of time that they're commuting. It's going to decrease the amount of time that they have with their family and friends. And then kids are raised in a situation where they're driven absolutely everywhere. It's just not sustainable. We need to be rethinking how to intensify our cities and make them more adaptive, 
affordable, accessible, and livable. And so areas for research on this are indeed on housing types and formations in other countries. Germany has the International Building Exhibition, International Bauausstellung. These are demonstration projects that showcase new kinds of living or future-oriented housing could look like. Oftentimes, it's also paired with landscape shows. Again, it's that density and housing and open space and green space and access to nature all kind of happening hand in hand. And then opportunities for opening up much more funding for non-traditional forms of housing and non-traditional forms of development. The productive city is another theme that I think uh, I would love to see focused on in the U.S., especially with the focus on manufacturing and the Inflation Reduction Act. It's really a topic that has emerged in the last couple of years in Europe. The productive city, a radical mixing of uses across a variety of scales, from region to neighborhood to buildings. It means bringing production from outside the city or the fringes of the city to the city center, along avenues as well as in neighborhoods. Production can be urban agriculture. It can be energy production, food production or processing, recycling centers, right? There's this broad array of small-scale production that Industry 4.0 plays a part of. And this is a stark contrast to the mono-functionality of U.S. cities where industrial zones generally don't allow housing, although in many cities they once did, right? And then downtown and commercial districts, they don't allow industry for the most part. And so everything just kind of clears out at the end of the day. But what if we made walkable, livable districts, eco-districts, neighborhoods that required the incorporation of diverse housing, urban amenities, open space, schools, and incorporating with that industry 4.0, space for process, space for non-polluting production. In Bavaria, we lived right next to a brewery. It was just nestled in the neighborhood. And yeah, you had to deal with the smell of the hops occasionally, but A, I don't find that smell bad. And less than half a mile away were farms, so we would often get the smells of manure as well. You know, smells are part of living in a city. But like having the brewery in the in the city, it made access to jobs much simpler. There were people who would walk and bike to the brewery. You know, one of the things that that has come out of the productive city is the realization that if people have jobs close by or if there's industry nearby or production centers, right, there are certain things that they're willing to put up with. One of them is noise. And if you're building a passive house, you can help mitigate a lot of that noise and other urban nuisances. But they're willing to put up with the production and the industry in exchange for things like free heating or energy production, utilizing these large rooftops for open space for the residents. It's this intensive mixing of residential and industrial uses that can be a means of regenerating neighborhoods. It can be a means of regenerating districts. Importantly, it's also a broad mix of social classes in contrast to the economic segregation that has increasingly become the norm in U.S. cities, even in industrial zoned lands, where as industry filters out of the city and is replaced with businesses and white collar jobs in those areas. And so it kind of keeps that that broader economic and social mix. The productive city also marks a return to the way cities developed a century ago, but with significantly less pollution, fewer safety hazards. The city of Brussels has been running with this concept for the last couple of years, especially along the revitalization of the canal. And there are just some incredible, incredible projects that are underway in planning or in construction that really are emblematic of the productive city. Productive cities really offer an opportunity to be bringing Industry 4.0 jobs into the city, housing into the city, bringing them close together 
and allowing for a plethora of co-benefits. Possible areas of research include pathways to adopting the productive city, barriers to the productive city, Euclidean zoning obviously being the first one, and then demonstration projects, right? How can we facilitate demonstration projects to really get the ball rolling on these kinds of things? Another area that I definitely think we should be focusing on are pathways to rapid decarbonization of building materials. Reducing the carbon expended in the construction of new buildings is paramount. To meeting our climate goals, the IPCC's Working Group 3 report was adamant that decarbonizing the construction sector was necessary to mitigate climate change. Uh, after working on and around mass timber projects uh, on and off for the last 20 years, Bill Gates is suddenly interested in mass timber as well as low carbon and zero carbon concrete as paths towards decarbonization. But I think that there's a massive opportunity for low carbon and carbon negative building products, but there isn't the path for widespread adoption. These include things like gravel. This is a recycled foam glass gravel, which has insulative values and can be used in lieu of fossil fuel-based rigid foams like XPS, as well as the abundant organic media that could be utilized, such as straw in compressed straw panels or prefabricated straw wall panels. There's a mass timber building in planning in Germany right now. It's 12-story mass timber structure, and all of the exterior walls are going to be prefabricated straw wall panels. So the carbon footprint of this building is going to be almost nothing. And there's also opportunities around other organic media, such as seaweed and things of that nature as well. So it's a sector that I think is going to continue garnering significant funding and attention in the European Union. We're already seeing it with the European Green Deal, with the new European Bauhaus. Could an ARPA-esque program facilitate the development and funding of decarbonized building products like this? Could research on barriers to market adoption around code, lack of knowledge, building science gaps, etc., could those be explored? And also the potential for bio-based material mandates. Amsterdam has a wood program. I think it's 20% of all buildings are to be built with wood going forward. France has a requirement for 50% of the building being biomaterials, right? So how do we start to kind of unlock these pathways through incentives, through funding and things of that nature? And lastly, looking at the case for urban climate resilience, climate adaptation, I think decentralization is going to play a bigger and bigger role. The last section, right, is like eco-district-wide water capture, water treatment, water reuse, issues around small-scale microgrids, local generation. This is kind of this aspect where the issue around water, I think, is going to be even more critical, especially with prolonged droughts. And so the issue of water is going to become fascinating, right? We have extreme droughts, and so we're not going to have access to water for a long time. And then we'll have these extreme inundations and flooding events, and we'll be overwhelmed by the amount of water. And so there's issues around retention, rainwater harvesting, capture, treatment. How can these be done, especially thinking about Carlite eco-districts? How can these be done at a broader scale? But issues around facilitating microgrids, local generation, and things of that nature. And so concurrent with this is also a big push towards sponge cities, blue-green infrastructure, because blue-green infrastructure is 
really critical to mitigating some of the effects of climate change, especially around stormwater and rainwater inundation, as well as the urban heat island effect. It's a central component to keeping cities cooler and more livable, more adaptive. There are a ton of issues for all of these things around financial hurdles, scaling up. What are the implementation frameworks that enable all levels of government to adopt these measures? What are the basic laws and regulations around required standards and targets, economic support, technical guidance, direct funding, financing instruments, right? There's this huge question about how all of these things both interact and how all of these issues could be expedited, accelerated, prioritized through an ARPA-esque program. As I said at the beginning, this is a work in progress. This is really about just throwing down some of the ideas that I wish that cities in the U.S. were focusing on. It's a little bit heavy-handed on the technology side, but concurrent with this, there are things that cities could be doing now to drastically adapt and mitigate climate change. The city of Paris is an excellent role model in this. They've rolled out massive bike lanes. They're going to remove 60,000 parking spaces over the next couple of years. They're turning the ring road into a park. They're trying to create a place where getting around without a car is not only faster, but more enjoyable. It's lower polluting. It results in a significant number of co-benefits. And so this issue of co-benefits, we're just going to come back to it over and over and over again because it is so imperative to how we address climate change. Likewise, the city of Amsterdam is removing 10,000 parking spaces for bike lanes, for transit priority for blue-green infrastructure. There are cities that are intensifying brownfields with compact, walkable eco-districts with ample open space, ample green space, just a wild mix of affordable housing, mix of uses, jobs. That in and of itself, right, could be a method of climate leadership. But part of the issue for me is that cities in the U.S., they'll talk about these issues all day long. They'll roll out long, extensive reports, fancy reports around targets, but there's no accountability. As an example, the city of Seattle is supposed to be reducing the number of vehicle miles traveled every year. Unfortunately, we're doing the opposite. There is no incentive to not drive. There's no disincentive to driving. It's not easy. It's not safe to bike around. Our transit is better than a lot of places, but it's still not that great. We're not great at creating walkable compact districts as well. And so our vehicle miles traveled are going up exponentially every year. There's no accountability measure that says, look, if we don't meet our VMT reduction goal, then we need to focus more and more on prioritizing things that will get the result that we need. And so for me, I guess part of this is about accountability. It's about highlighting things that cities could be doing that they should have been doing a long time ago. And this ARPA-esque program can provide some of the structure, some of the support, the financial incentive, the market assistance, whatever it takes really to get things moving. But at the end of the day, if cities in the U.S. aren't going to take climate change seriously, then we're going to be in a world of hurt when we blow past 1.5C, if we hit 2C or even hotter. Our cities, our buildings are not designed to mitigate and adapt these kinds of temperatures. It's really about setting a framework 
where cities can have discussions around these topics, where we can start to move the goalposts on these issues, where instead of watching what other cities are doing around climate action at the scale and pace of things that they're doing, right, we can start to see that here. And we can start to have things here in the U.S. that we can look at and say, look, this is what we should be doing, or this is how things could be. This is why doing this is better. My hope is that this podcast starts to get at some of that. Like I said, this is just a broad list of topics that I think cities should be focusing on. We'll definitely be coming back and focusing on some of these in the next couple of months. If you have any questions about these topics, by all means, please get a hold of us at Larch Lab. These are things that we're very passionate about. That is all I have for this week. Ciao. Thanks to our listeners for joining us on the Livable Low Carbon City podcast. We'll be back with another episode soon to broaden the discourse and highlight how we can co-create a low carbon urban future together. If you'd like to know more about what Larch Lab is doing, please subscribe to our monthly newsletter. I'll add the link to the episode notes. Thank you.